In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Starting Line Podcast with me, Rich Lee. Before I talk about episode five, I should just quickly say thank you very much for your response to episode four with undefeated pro boxer Shabir Hadery. An incredible story of drive, resilience, tenacity, ambition, success, pitfalls, all these things. If you haven't listened to it, go back. It's powerful, it's emotional. And I think it's an important conversation to be having. So have a listen to that one. If you haven't already, go back and listen to our episodes with Levi Roots, with Marnie Swindles, with James Cracknell. Some great ones so far. Thank you for continually supporting this as well. I just, again, I'm excited about where this goes. To introduce our next guest, I want to ask the question, who do Lord Sugar, Stephen Bartlett and the Spice Girls have in common? And the answer is, well, you've seen his name, is Andrew Block, a name that might not be familiar to you, but he is basically Mr. Black Book. He, in the UK, has worked in public relations for decades now. And if you don't know what public relations is, PR, it's one of those things that everybody's got a kind of vague idea of, but people are rarely in the know unless you have worked in and around it or know people that do. PR is everywhere. Every time you open a newspaper... Every time you go on the mail online, every time you open your social media feed, there are the fingerprints of PR people like Andrew and like myself. There's nothing especially cynical about it. It's marketing. It's building and protecting reputations. It's saying, right, this brand, this celebrity, this entrepreneur, whoever it is, to promote them, we need to think about the audience. And then in thinking of the audience, we need to think about how we reach that audience. And sometimes, as I say, that's going to be your favorite radio channel. That could be the podcast you listen to. That could be anything. PR people are everywhere. And we hope that you don't see us. That's kind of the point. So Andrew has worked in and around the industry for a very long time. And he's going to hate me having said that because he's going to slap me next time and say, you've, you've called me old. I don't mean that. He's been at the top of his game with phenomenal clients 
And he started Frank PR in 2000 with Graham Goodkind. And I know this because I worked with them, working on some incredibly successful brands and entrepreneurs and also startups and bringing them up to that point of success. He's got an awful lot to say about culture, celebrity culture, the arts, The the Apprentice. uh, Andrew had played a significant role in actually bringing The Apprentice to our screens. So you'll hear about that in the podcast. And this is a slightly different sort of episode to what's come before in that it is a chat with somebody and we, we get into the weeds on the business side of things. For those of you interested in building and selling companies, this is especially interesting as an episode because Andrew gets into how he built and sold his company and made his millions. Just in terms of what I want this podcast to be, I want this to be conversations with successful entrepreneurs, actors, athletes, entertainers, philanthropists, you name it, people with a good story to tell. And you know they're willing to discuss their starting line and how they got to where they are now and what they've had to go through to get there. I don't want this podcast to become a very difficult to listen to kind of sob story laden podcast. That's not what my intention was and certainly not what I think we've put out so far. So every episode is going to be slightly different with somebody with a different perspective. And that's the wonderful thing about podcasts is you pick and choose the ones that you want to listen to. I think Andrew has a phenomenal story to tell, professional story to tell. He came through one of the most famous PR agencies of the 90s. In fact, any UK listeners and the majority of you at the minute are UK, but in the future that might not be the case. There was a program called Absolutely Fabulous and Adina Monsoon, one of the characters, is said to have been fashioned after a lady called Lynn Franks, who was Andrew's first boss. And it speaks to that hedonistic 90s, very different way of running her business time. So Andrew came through that to create his own agency, very successful. And he is the advisor still to Lord Sugar and lots of other successful entrepreneurs and brands. So this is a fantastic episode, a fascinating one. If you don't know about the world of PR, you're about to learn. To follow this show, follow us at Starting Line Show on Instagram and TikTok. Follow us at Starting Line Show without the W on Twitter. Starting Line Podcast on Facebook. If you want to find out more about me, about the podcast, that's Starting Line Pod. And I think that's it. So without further ado, I bring to you my conversation with Andrew Block. Andrew. Hello. Hello, hello. What are you doing these days? Uh, where do you want me to start? Oh, gosh. You left Frank when? I left Frank May 2020, so just actually about three years ago, just over three years ago now. And since then, what's been keeping you busy? I guess, look, the, the decision to leave Frank was, was not an easy one, and I didn't really have any sort of plan. I knew what I didn't want to do. I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do. So that's 20 years, right? You founded Frank in 20 years. Frank was September 2000. So it was, yeah, 20 years, I guess, to a degree, I was a bit institutionalized. But, you know, (laughs) I loved the agency world. It's it's what I am. But I knew I didn't want to run another agency. I knew I didn't want staff, essentially. So I guess I started out and thought, you know, what am I good at? What do I like? What don't I like? Which is quite a hard thing to do. And It's tough after you've been doing the same thing for 20 years and building. That's what you're known for. To then yeah and there's you know everyone has imposter syndrome and you kind of think I don't know and then obviously my timing was impeccable because this thing called covid sort of <laughs> just came from nowhere about a month after I'd made the decision and but there was no looking back I'd made my mind up it was a decision that took a couple of years to come to so it wasn't an overnight sort of get out of bed and you know pack it in and I still wanted to be involved in frank which I still am I, I wrote this post on LinkedIn which reflected on my 
20 years at Frank. And it was a really cathartic exercise. And I think one of the things that I've never really done in my career is taking the time to stop and look back. And I'm a great believer in sort of don't get too high on the highs, too low on the lows. You just sort of push through, you know, you win a pitch, you win an award, great. Get on with the next one, lose a pitch. So I wrote this post and in the post, I just was pretty honest. Like, don't really know what I'm going to do. I'd like to consult, maybe sit on a few boards, maybe do a bit of work for not for profits and give something back. I don't really want to start another agency. And that was the sort of basis of this post. And then my phone just started to ring. I mean, literally within minutes of it going live, which wasn't the intention of, of why I did it. I just felt I need to tell everyone that I'm making a bit of a, a move. Yeah. I feel like sometimes it's just putting something out and then seeing what comes back, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it genuinely, it wasn't designed to do that. But one of the things I've learned with LinkedIn as a, I guess, self-promotion tool, if you write about what you're doing, human psychology is pretty basic. If you're front of mind, people think of you. So every time over the last few years, I've said, you know, just done this, just done that, inevitably someone will think to themselves, oh, Andrew could be good to help us with that. And that's sort of what's happened for the last three years. But I started off, the first phone call I got was a guy called Zach Cutler, who ran a PR agency in New York years ago. And I'd known him through my time, actually, when we had a, an office in New York for Frank. And he'd set up a software company called Propel. He called it PRM, Public Relations Management. But he was one of the first people to ever recognize how technology can help our industry. And he's a really bright guy. And anyway, he talked to me about Propel, said, would I join, sit on his board? And I said, yes, straight away, because I could see the potential of it. And you know, he's done phenomenally well in the three years that I've been working with him and raised a load of money and now has was right at the forefront of AI and how that can impact communications industry. And so now you can search for media using AI on what they've written about, their tone of voice, all of that kind of stuff. So did that. I had a phone call from a guy called Lee McQueen, who actually was a winner of The Apprentice, God, 2014, something like that. We'd stayed in touch ever since I'd handled his PR when he won the show. And he had, again, another technology company called Phoenix 51, which was video recruitment and assessment platform. Timing, impeccable. I was just about to say, perfect timing. And yeah, I've been working with him for a few years and, th and that company has rocketed as well. And I really enjoy that. And then I was doing a bit of consultancy for brands that almost like a I think they call it like a fractional CMO is the term where you sort of go in, advise them, help them out. And then, you know, I was getting phone calls on a pretty much daily basis for people sort of asking me, could I recommend a PR company? Could I recommend a social media agency? I don't know a lot, but I know a lot about agencies. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd sort of built up this encyclopedic knowledge that you kind of do when you work in agency world of who is good at what and what people would be good at. So I started to sort of place brands with agencies. And then I met the CEO of AAR, Victoria Fox, and we clicked instantly. And she was like, would you come in and lead our PR practice? And I was like, yeah, sure. This sounds perfect. So I was working with big brands, massive budgets, helping them to find the right agencies. And for me, it was almost second nature that I could figure out not just skill set, but culture, chemistry, style of working, all the things that make a good agency relationship. So I've been working with AI for the last few years and that role has expanded. So now I'm not just looking after PR, but social content influencer. And I really, really enjoy that. And then 
I had another sort of chance meeting with a guy called Ben Daltis, who runs an M&A firm called PCB Partners. And M&A being? Mergers and Acquisitions. So Ben was a really interesting guy, had a headhunting business in the technology space, very, very successful, sold his company to Manpower, made a lot of money, was pretty much retired by the age of 35 or something like that, but bored. And we met for a coffee and he was like, you know, how do you keep your motivation? Blah, 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 blah. He, he recognized that in the mergers and acquisitions world, the principles of headhunting were very similar. So you can either, you know, lots of firms go to market and they try and get the best possible bid. But for an acquirer, quite frustrating because you you don't really want to bid for companies. And also you don't necessarily want the ones that want to sell. You want the people that aren't ready to sell, that are maybe a year or so away, that aren't in a process. So what he started to do was go to all these people that he'd built connections with over the years, who were now the CEOs of Google, of Sage, of Meta. His black book was impeccable. And he'd say, look, tell me what you're looking for in terms of acquisitions. I'll go out and find them for you. And these would be the best companies. He was just doing in and around tech. Yes. So he said to me, I'm seeing this blend between marketing and technology and MarTech emerging. I don't know this space. You know it. Will you come in and be a partner and lead our marketing services division? I was like, mate, like flattering, but I don't know the first thing about M&A. And he's like, well, you sold your company. And I said, yeah, but that was a long time ago. And it was one deal. And I'm by no means an expert. And, and what he said to me, which I've learned to be true, was, you know, you've been there, you've seen it, you've worn the T-shirt. Actually, the skill of this job is is empathy and relating to founders and a knowledge of the marketplace. He said, I can find people in pinstripe suits that are very good on Excel spreadsheets and can do all the numbers, but I can't find the people that know how to build the connections and essentially put two people together. So I said, look, I'm happy to give it a go. I can't claim that I'm super confident about it. And I took to it like a duck to water honest i absolutely it's, love it's because it. it's people again isn't it it's, it's people as you say it's the empathy it's the people and you know the market so yeah and that's the key to it i think you've got to stay within your lane and what i've learned and i have taken on a few positions where i haven't really known what i'm doing because it's been outside of my area of expertise and i've made investments in areas that i didn't really understand and that's been a mistake so what i've learned to do now is just stick to what i know you know, now on the M&A side, I'm buying companies for you know, the biggest marketing services groups in the world, the biggest management services in the world, and also helping to sell companies to them. And I've just loved it. I think I've always, again, I've, I've reflect now a lot more than I ever have done previously. And what I love doing is a deal. And it doesn't really matter doesn't if matter that if deal is making or... <laughs> a pound or a million pounds. I get that buzz. And helping someone who's founded a business exit and get a financial reward, but also a career progression, a step up in what they're doing, it's just the most rewarding thing. And it's painful. It's the highs and lows of the M&A world are more brutal and intense than any pitch process you'll ever go through. I mean, it's just magnified. And I've had to manage my own expectations. You know, when I started and I'd get initial interest from someone, I'd kind of, you know, think, yep deal done. And then you realize there's so many hurdles to go through to get that signature on a piece of paper. And it takes a long time. But, you know, I've done three or four deals in the last couple of years. And it's, it's been amazing. It's changed the lives of the people that have helped exit 
and that's great. And it's so for me, it's that money is it's it's always going to be important, but it's not my motivator because I think money sort of follows doing a good job. And if you concentrate on doing a good job, then the money comes. And that's what I've seen with these deals. You just throw yourself in. You don't worry about the financial side of it to you personally. You do the best job you can possibly do. And at the end, if you've done a good job, the money will follow. And it's the same for a founder of a company, you know, that they can get seduced by the millions of pounds, but if the fit isn't right, it's never going to work. And you have to have that integrity to guide them properly. And- I've definitely had that with clients where, you know, it, it seems like a great monthly amount or, you know, great annual amount. And you think, absolutely, why not? Have you had that? I'm going to guess oh, yeah, you've had that. A- absolutely. Yeah. And it, you, you end up regretting it. I think I should have listened. Yeah. You listen to your gut, but it's, it's hard and experience makes you better at it, but it doesn't make you perfect. And, but your gut is normally right. And, and I'm a great believer in just following your gut. I'm not a massive one for planning for the detail. If something just feels like the right thing to do, do it. But more importantly, if something doesn't feel right, you've got to have the confidence to walk away. And one of the big things when you walk away from a company is, you know, there's no salary anymore. I don't sort of take my paycheck come what may. If I don't do anything, I don't get paid. So there is a temptation to say yes to everything. And that's, if I'm being completely honest, what I did in the early days. In the early days post leaving the Post Frank, the early days of my next step of my career. And I did say yes to a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have just to get some money through the door and that fear like, well, what if no one else wants me? And then I've realized and I've built the confidence. My phone isn't going to stop ringing. There's always going to be the opportunities. And time is your most valuable commodity. So if you clog yourself up too much doing things you don't enjoy and they don't reward you financially and professionally, then you've got to say no to that because you're stopping yourself from the opportunity to do something that's going to be much more rewarding on every level. So it's, it's still work in progress. I'm by no means the master of it. But I, I can see my progress almost month by month in that space, potentially out of necessity. Like I just can't take on a lot more. So I want to make sure. It sounds like you've taken on a lot. I've taken on a lot. Look, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a workaholic, but I probably am. (laughs) I, I, I love what I do. And that is my barometer for everything. You know, if you wake up every morning and you don't dread it and you look forward to it, it's the greatest blessing in the world. And the moment that starts to erode and you're not feeling the joy, a, that's sad. And B, I don't think you can be the best at who you are. You know, you've got to love what you do. And I don't take that for granted because I've got so many friends. I've reached a stage in life where you know, I've got friends that have been doing the same job for 20, 30 years and they're miserable. They're grey commuters. And I feel really sorry for them because what are they going to They don't have the luxury that I've had of maybe being able to make that change. And they know they've got that financial freedom, maybe. Is that? It's. Partly it's financial freedom, but it's also I've managed to build a skill set that has allowed me to do this. You know, if you work for a big corporate, a bank, a property company, you potentially don't have that opportunity to go out and do something on your own. And not everyone is entrepreneurial. And I never thought of myself necessarily as an entrepreneur, but I realized that I am. And yeah, I would never want to be trapped in the system of working for someone else but a lot of people you know my brother who's got a very successful career who i've tried to persuade on multiple occasions to just come and partner with me just not in his makeup you know he wants to work for someone else he wants that so let's let's go there so you and your brother what makes you different i don't know it's a really good question and at times when i was a bit younger i'd get frustrated for him because he's older younger he's younger he's three years younger 
but he's incredibly talented, absolutely brilliant at what he does. No, but I'd say to my dad, it's really frustrating. You know, I really want him to come and work with me. And, and my dad would say, look, you're two different people and he's happy, you're happy. He's doing well, you're doing well. Don't try and make him into you. And he's right. You know, you can't, not everyone can be entrepreneurial. And working for a big company doesn't make you a loser. It doesn't make you, you know, there's plenty of people who've got amazing careers working. It's just not for me. I think even when I was at school, I didn't particularly like authority being told what to do. I was never good at taking That's criticism. really interesting because I, I, I feel exactly the same way. So where did he grow up? Was it North London? Yes, grew up in North London. How did that, you said that you, you, you weren't great with authority. And, and actually, I said it to you before we started, but there's so much written about you or out there about you since you got into PR. So Lynn Franks onwards. So up to now. Yeah. Even, you know, a lot of what you've just said, you know, we, we know that. Before that, there was an Andrew Block that didn't know what PR was, that, yeah. you know, didn't, didn't know that he was going to you know, build the, the black book that you have, didn't know that you were going to acquire the skills that you have, didn't know that you were going to do all these things. So what was he like? Oh, he was a great bloke. He's a, he was. was a great bloke. Still is, still is. He's a great guy. No, it's funny, actually. I went out last night with a bunch of my old schoolmates. Yeah, we've been friends for 30 plus years. We went to a school called Haberdashers, like one of the best private schools in the country. Super, super brilliant people went there, you know, people that are now leading the medical field, legal field. Yeah, it's, it's spawned some great people. I was always part of this group of the rejects, really, that weren't particularly academic, that didn't want to pursue the route or weren't capable of pursuing the route of being a lawyer, being an accountant, being a doctor. Or the prescribed routes. The prescribed routes that in those days, that was what the school, you know, if you didn't want to go to Oxbridge, they didn't really want to know. That's what success looks like. And then, you know, last night, sat around the table, Magnus Jabber, who's the chief client officer, president, or whatever great role he has at Publicist Group, like had an incredible career. You've got Matt Weiner, who's creative director at Red Torch, one of the best sports agencies out there. You've got Matt Lucas, who's done all right for himself. <laughs> oh, that Matt Lucas. That Matt Lucas. That Matt Lucas. He's done okay. Uh, yeah, I think you've he's got, done all right. Um, Mark Crendle, who used to be commercial director of Universal. You've got Jason Heller, who's a guy who founded a business called Huggle, brilliant baby uh, shop and retailer. Killen Dodia, Rajesh Shah, who founded Encore Venture Capital, who are like behind Third Space, Mildred's, Jim Carner. We were all the complete rejects <laughs> of the school. No one invested in us. No one cared. And we were having this debate because Magnus and I go back to the school quite a lot to do talks and inspire people on creativity. And the school's suddenly woken up to the fact that not everyone wants to be a doctor, a lawyer. So they've now sort of after years of being of no interest to the school all of a sudden like will you come and do a talk will you do our careers fair i love it and i had a great experience and the only reason i ever really got into pr was i had an art teacher a guy called stuart todd hunter who saw something in me art was always you know i was creative it was my thing i loved it and he said i think you'd be good in advertising and no one had ever said to me that i was going to be good at anything so i just clung on to it you know you do those career test where you fill in the multiple choice and blah, blah, blah. And it told me I was going to be a fireman. Um, <laughs> and that wasn't for me. So I just clung on to this idea of, yeah, I, I could be good at advertising because it was the only thing anyone had ever told me that I'd be good at. And then I, I went to Manchester and I did a degree in management sciences, which sort of touched on everything from psychology, business psychology, accounting, advertising, PR. And I just, I enjoyed it. And just to I, give you that broad base, I guess. Yeah, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I enjoyed the business side of it as well as the, the marketing side of it. 
you know, I was determined to go after this career and getting into advertising pretty brutal. I mean, it's, you know, and I was when, get, when was this? What year was this? Nineteen ninety four, ninety five, and I was you know, trying to get these jobs and going through the application process. And it was, it was arduous. I mean, multiple interviews, much tougher than it is nowadays. And whilst I was going through that, I was just getting bored. I just wanted to work. And someone said to me, my mum claims it was her, I'm not convinced it was, that why don't you try PR? It's similar to advertising. And I didn't really even know what PR was. And I wrote to a hundred or so PR companies and one of them wrote back to me saying, would you like to do work experience? And that was Lynn Franks. And you know, this is where luck comes into it sometimes. You know, I look back and I think, wow, that was the perfect company for me. Tell us about Lynn Franks. Lynn Franks was a crazy place. And, you know, if you go back to the mid 90s, it was the place to work. It was a fashion and entertainment agency, predominantly fashion. Lynn Franks was the inspiration for Absolutely Fabulous. And it wasn't that dissimilar. And I walked in this sort of dork in a suit <laughs> on the first day and everyone on that day two you did not turn up in a suit yeah never wore the suit since <laughs> but they plonked me in this division which was the brand division which was the money-making bit of the agency and lim franks created london fashion week she created the british fashion awards you know we were doing the pr for the baftas for all of these top designers all these celebrities and it was a mental place and then they had clients like BT, like Lloyds Bank, like Coca-Cola, like Absolute Who wanted Walker, a piece of that. Wanted a piece of it. And that's where I met Graham Goodkind, who was the MD. But you're an exec. I was work experience. Work experience, and yeah. Graham's the MD at this time. Yes. I think he was actually, he was a director, and then he got made MD within about six months or so of me starting. And yeah, we just clicked. And then Lynn Franks got bought by Ketchum. Graham didn't really want to do it. Because it's becoming more corporate, less what it was. I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier, he didn't see the fit and he was right. I mean, it didn't, you know, Lim Frank sort of got eaten up and disappeared by under Ketchum. But I decided I would, so he sort of went his own way, went into dot-com. That was the fashionable thing to do at that. Did all right out of that? Did all right out of that. And I decided I would stay. And I got a bit lucky. You know, I was seen as a bit of a cheerleader for Lim Franks. They wanted to look after me because they knew that me being happy would probably impact the happiness of my peer group, which I think was true. So I got promoted quickly and I was heading up their sport and entertainment division. And yeah, loved every second of it, really. But I kind of always knew in my gut. My dad had always, my dad's been a big inspiration to me. And he'd, he'd always said to me, you know, you never get rich working for someone else. And I'd, say to me, oh, I've just got a grand pay rise or they've just promoted me to things like, you're great. And I was like, <laughs> and the, the, you know, he was... Is that he, where the anti-authority kind of street might come I in? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, one of the things I did get frustrated with in that big agency environment is, and I think one of the reasons that without sounding like big-headed, I'm good at what I do because I understand the media and I love it. And I remember... I'd got to like, I don't know, count director level or something like that. And I was on the phone to a journalist pitching a story. And my boss, who was sat in her sort of lofty corner office, said, you know, why are you on the phone? That's the job of exec. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you, this is what we get paid to do is get the results. And sure, I'm not going to be phoning, you know, the Edgeware Times with a story about knitting. But if I can place something in the front pages of the Sun or get a feature in the Sunday Times, you know, that's where the value is. And I don't want to ever lose that because actually that goes through everything you do. You know, when you're advising a client, when you're putting together a creative proposal, you have to understand the media. I know you've been asked this question a million times, but I guess people that are going to be listening to this won't necessarily even know what PR is. Can, can you give a, a quick 
uh, you know, break down on what PR is. I know I could do it too, but... Uh, you can probably do it better than me. <laughs> I doubt honest. that. But, uh, it's a hard thing to describe and gets harder and harder because it's ever evolving. But essentially, it's managing a brand, a person, a product reputation in the media. So it can be helping to change perceptions. It can be help- helping to manage issues. There's lots of different types of PR. So I always specialized in consumer but there's business to business PR and then there's specialisms like healthcare, like finance, like fashion, like music, you, you know, you name it. There's 10,000 PR companies out there. My strength has always been consumer. And your passion, I guess. Yeah. I mean, putting it simply, I always thought, well, I'm a consumer. I understand them. And I did, you know, during actually when I was at Ketchum, I started to specialize in sport and entertainment again with that sort of logic. Well, I like football, so it'd be quite good to do football stuff. And it was weird, really. I was working for great brands, people like Puma, doing the Liverpool and England sponsorships for Carlsberg. I was doing Ariel's sponsorship of the England football team. And then I sort of found, for me, like going to football was always a bit of a escape and a chance to switch off. And I'd, you know, leave work or at the weekend, go to a game and I'd enjoy it. And then all of a sudden I noticed I was looking at what boots players were wearing and looking at the hoardings around the side of who was advertising. And it, it just all started to blur and I was like I don't enjoy football as much anymore because I'm not switching <laughs> off I'm thinking about who the shirt sponsor is and all the things that I shouldn't be thinking about when I'm trying to watch Spurs win which <laughs> didn't happen that often um but so I sort of then broadened out and went a bit more general but so after a couple of years at Ketchum Graham came to me and said fancy setting up a PR company no <laughs> so I don't, don't think I'm ready although you always did you always want to run a business? I didn't really know. I didn't know. And I was pretty happy. I mean, I've always been happy in my career. So I wasn't unhappy at Ketchum and it's a brilliant, brilliant agency. And to this day, one of the best agencies out there. And and I said, I don't feel ready. I said, I've been doing this sort of five years. Is that how long you so you'd been yeah. in PR for five years? So, yeah. So the hundred letters you sent or the hundred would have been letters at the time. Was it, yes. It wasn't emails, was it? Wasn't emails. Wasn't emails. Did you get any, any rejection? Or was well, it just... Yeah, 99% rejections or just no responses. Just no responses. Or, so. Yeah, I mean, I didn't actually... I think even in the advertising space, I never got to the stage where I got rejected. I was getting to like first round, second round, third round. It was taking so long. And then I went with the thing I loved about PR, although I thought I wanted to go into advertising without really knowing that much about the industry, I loved the immediacy of PR. And I think I've always been a bit of a adrenaline junkie. And that thrill of coming up with an idea, pitching it to media, seeing it in the papers the next day. There's nothing like it, is there? I loved it. It was my drug. And, you know, in those days, there was no internet. There was, so you'd, the papers would come out the next day, but I'd be at King's Cross at 11 at night when the first edition sort of rolled in because I couldn't sleep. I was so excited to see it. And now that immediacy has become even greater. And, you know, it's unbelievable. You have an idea, you can put it on Twitter in five minutes and it can be global in 10 minutes. You, you know, that's, that buzz is incredible. And with technology, the speed and the ease of reaching people has got easier and easier and easier. Actually, what's got harder is being able to cut through and get people to pay attention and take notice of what you're doing. And that's where being a great creative and thinking a bit disruptively that's how you get the great results because you can reach them, but you can't necessarily get them to notice it. You had your art teacher that told you you'd be good in advertising. We don't really at that age tend to know what PR is. Advertising is marketing. That's what we yes. see it as. That's what we think yeah. it is. So you knew that you were creative or you were told that you were creative yes. in, in that sense. Have you got any kind of creative inspirations? Anybody that makes you think, you know, that helps me think differently? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a great reader of books. 
books and I'm not an academic, but I think I've always soaked up popular culture. And I know far too much about fashion, beauty, music for a straight male bloke that's <laughs> about to be 50, you know, like, and I think that's where my inspirations come from anywhere. And I think one of the things I've always tried to do is just think a bit disruptively. And I'm a great believer that, you know, don't stick to a specialism and just because something's always been done that way, do it the same way. Think about how you could shake it up and, and change it. So, you know, I take inspiration from cars, from artists, from, but I'm not, yeah, I wouldn't actually call myself a classic creative. Well, they, they, they do say it's, it's like the broader the base of your inputs, the more creative you can be, you know, the, the more you take in. I feel like we're losing that. As people get more and more entrenched as algorithms say, this is the content you want. This is the exact yeah. content you want. We draw from a, a smaller pool, more shallow pool of potential creative kind of inspiration. 100%. And I think, you know, now diversity and inclusion, rightly so, is a big focus for agencies and companies. But I always recognised you can't sit in a little London bubble and think what happens in my world is the rest of the country. I always, you know, as does Graham, and I know, you know, he's read The Sun every day since he was 15 years old, as have I, because that's your barometer of the nation. And, you know, we very early on started to recruit people that weren't from London that, you know, yes, by implication, they had ethnic diversity, religious diversity, sexual diversity, but that wasn't really my motivation for doing it. My motivation was I want people that have lived different lives, seen different things, will have different inspirations. And creativity can come from absolutely anywhere. I mean, I think one of the biggest dangers in organisations is when they have a creative director that doesn't infuse creativity throughout the organisation. They keep it within the, their department and their division. I've always been a believer, you know, sometimes the best ideas come from the most unexpected places. And often I will chat to my kids, chat to the receptionist, chat to the cleaner, chat to the gardener, you know, just get their views on different things and that they don't necessarily know that they're being creative, but they're the, the, the key to a great creative is being able to be inspired and find triggers by what other people say to you. And that's, I've always tried to do that in that's my That's a really important thing there. And it is, I guess, that curiosity. And yeah. I think the most creative people that I know, the most interesting people I know, endlessly curious and, and almost just being able to admit to yourself that you don't know something about an area. Yeah. And I just want to delve into that. I want to learn a little bit more, even if it's not surface level, but you just entry level. I just need to learn a bit about that. So then it might come up in another yeah. way. And sometimes, you know, knowing too much is a great barrier. That's why children come up with these most amazing ideas, because they don't have the capacity to think things through and talk themselves out of an idea. You know, I, I know a little bit about a lot, some of it fairly useless stuff, but it's, a, it's enough. And yeah, I am curious, you know, where, where when I say I don't read books, it doesn't mean I don't read. I listen to podcasts, I read endless articles and talk to so many different people about different things. And that's where I build my knowledge. And, you know, the, the craft of what I do is the same as it was 20 odd years ago, 25 years ago. But, you know, if you think I started in, a, in an era where there was no email, there was no internet, there was no social media, you, you know, you had a story, you would fax it through. It's unrecognizable, but the actual skill that's involved is the same. And I love how technology has kept pushing us forward. And people say there's no, no such thing as a new idea. Maybe that's true but there's definitely a new way of distributing that idea and packaging that idea and often that comes from technological evolution. really nice way of putting it so in the industry you are well known 
lots of people know you for, as you say, creative consumer campaigns. You're also very well known now for personal PR and in particular for Lord Sugar as a client. Um, so you've been an advisor to Lord Sugar for how long? 23 years. It was pretty early days of Frank that we got together. So he so. was an early client? Yeah. How did that come about? Fluke. Well, not fluke. Um, <laughs> in the early days of Frank, we had investment from a marketing agency called Branded, and Amstrad were a client of theirs, and we had the opportunity to pitch for the Amstrad business. And we lost the pitch, actually, but... We knew it was such a big opportunity for us. I'd never wanted to work on anything more. I'd grown up with Amstrad products and, you know, it was just a great brand. And we were early days, a few months in. I mean, that's, that's agency and life-changing. Yes. So I, we begged. I mean, there's no like, real <laughs> other way of eloquently describing it. And I think we'd, we'd gone into this pitch and we tried to be so big and clever because we really wanted it. And the marketing director of Amstrad, a guy called Alan Hopkins, he sort of said, look, we like you, but really what we want is just someone who can, you know, get this product on this page. We don't need any of this fancy stuff. And I don't know, I guess I've never been one to take no for an answer. And I just phoned him up and I said, look, honestly, we probably went a bit over the top because we want this so badly. And, you know, don't go and employ some basic PR company that can only do that product placement. We can do that, but we can do a lot more. I think he felt sorry for us, really. And he, but he saw the hunger and he saw it was genuine, like it wasn't bullshit. Yeah, we, I really, really wanted it. And so we got the business. And then, you know, I'd see Alan, as he was at the time, at product launches. And in some ways, I'd sort of tried to stay away from him. He'd had a reputation for not liking agency people and had made some quite bold statements in the media. And I just kind of figured to myself, there's no real advantage of getting to know him. Like, let's just stay out his way. We've probably got more chance of retaining the business. But personal PR is, is built on trust and relationships. You can't just, I think that's why the relationships are so long, generally, when you're doing a decent job. But I got to know him, and it just started to evolve. And he got made a sir. We were doing a lot of work with Gordon Brown, and we were touring the country, speaking to schools. And his, he, his big thing was he wanted to inspire young people to be entrepreneurial and teach them business skills. One day he phoned me up and said, like, there's this show in America, it's called The Apprentice. And I think it'll be really good for me. How did you go from you avoiding him to him asking, saying, hey, there's a show, The Apprentice? I think we just got, you know, over time, we got to know each other. And he, he taught me loads about PR, actually. I mean, he's a brilliant PR man without really probably knowing that he is. We, and we just, you know, it just evolved and you started to get involved in his personal stuff. And, and of course, you had Nick Hewer as well. Nick Hewer, who was the sidekick on The Apprentice, actually, he was doing his PR for years and years and years. Lord Sugar's a very, very loyal person. If you do a good job and you don't do wrong, you know, he will stick by you. And Nick had been doing his PR through the flotation of Amstrad, you know, loads of things. And Nick was retiring. And that was where our opportunity came in. And so Nick was sort of in the early years when we were doing Amstrad stuff, I guess Nick was still by his side, even though he was retired, just helping him out. But it came to a point where, you know, Nick properly wanted to put his feet up. And that's where we came in. And so, you know, the, he got the gig on The Apprentice and his reason for doing it was to inspire as many young people as possible. And that, you know, the show I've been working on it, we're filming the 18th series at the moment, which is unreal. And people sometimes criticise it and they say the candidates are idiots and blah, blah, blah. But I see the emails from young people, the difference it's made to people's lives. It's unbelievable. And that 
elevated his profile. I mean, he was already well-known and a bit of a darling of the UK business world, but I don't think the man on the street knew who he was. And this happened because he'd seen The Apprentice in the States. Yeah. Brunted at the time, I guess, by by Trump. Yeah. What was the process from him saying, I think we should have something like this here? He'd heard, or I can't remember, we'd heard that they were going to bring it out to the UK and they met several people and he got chosen. See. Yeah, I mean, look, he is that show. It's it's been a massive part of his life. One of the things he'd always said was he'd in a, in America the show had done really well. Then they they sort of mucked around. They started to muck around with the format and in a way make it a bit more big brothery. It was you know just tinkering with it and doing different things, and it just never really managed to find its feet again. And they had different presenters. They had a celebrity version. There's been Schwarzenegger. There's been all sorts of people involved in that show. And Lord Sugar always said, I don't want to change the format. When when the viewing figures start to decline, if they start to decline, or you know, it becomes unpopular, then we'll play around with the format. But actually it works, so let's not muck around with it. And he's obviously got quite a lot of power over the, the show being at the centre of it. And he's always resisted. The only real change was after seven years it went from being a job for him to an investment from him. And that made a big difference because actually when people were getting the job, you had these young people winning the show that were coming in on a hundred grand job. And A, it was annoying everyone else in the company who was on half the salary and they'd sort of had their nose out of joint a bit. And B, it was hard to keep them motivated because these people were naturally entrepreneurial and wanted more than a hundred grand job. And so they changed the format so it became a £250,000 investment from him And that's really, you know, I mean, it's been a brilliant part of my career because I've got to manage each of those people and help transition them from being, you know, essentially TV personalities into credible business people. And I've never got bored of it because every single person is different. Every business is different. And they've had varying degrees of successes, but some of them have gone on to huge, huge success, built brilliant companies and, you know, more importantly, inspired thousands and thousands of people that they can do it themselves. And that's great. So you work with every apprentice winner from yes. a PR advisory perspective, a management perspective. You say that you've given much the same speech to each of them about what to do post-show yeah. and how to act and, you know, and, and the, you know, the opportunities to take and not take. What's the version of that speech? I guess the confidential version or the principles of, of that speech are, you know, these people have been on a 12-week show. They're in the public profile. They're getting invited to the opening of an envelope. And it's all very exciting. Ultimately, if Lord Sugar's got it right, which inevitably he does, he's chosen the people that want to build businesses, not to be famous. And it's trying to shift their mindset to not being distracted by the premiere of this, the launch of that, and to actually focus on their business and become famous via their success as business people. And they could be a business personality at the same time, because I think that's part of any great business is having someone with a profile and and they have a huge advantage in that they've just had 12 weeks exposure on primetime TV, 10 million people watching them every week, rooting for them. It's like the best head start for a startup you could ever get. But they, they see the other contestants who are going on the game shows and the reality programs and probably making better money than them initially. And, and it's trying to advise them on taking a long-term view. And it's like anyone that goes on a TV show, whether it's The Apprentice or Love Island or Big Brother, any agent or PR person in the world can get you five grand to turn up at Faces nightclub or two grand to hold a can of something in the air and wave it to the Daily Star. Not difficult to do that. The great agents, the great PRs will build a career for longevity. And that's about 
deciding to do the right thing and not everything. I guess it's hard when, as you say, you see all these people doing all these things and you think, why isn't that me? What That should be me. You yeah. know, I want, I want to be in the papers. And they've just had that buzz, as you say. Yeah. And it's hard. It's a come down. It's also, you know, the media write about you very differently when you're on the show versus when you're not on the show. But, you know, look, I've got years of experience of doing it. I actually, you know, yes, my paymaster, if you like, is Lord Sugar, but I'm totally invested in those winners. So his agenda is the right agenda for them, is the, is the right thing to be guiding them. And I have to build their trust as well. You know, I have to, I don't repeat back everything to Lord Sugar. He doesn't need to know it, doesn't want to know it. He trusts me to keep them on the right path, which generally I have done. I think trust is such an important part of those relationships, those personal PR relationships. And, and as you say, it does lead to that longevity. You said that having a personal brand is all about values, and I completely agree. So you know, whether you're an entertainer or a business person, your personal brand are your values. What do you think your values are? I think, I mean, actually, believe it or not, I'm a bit of an introvert. So you're not ever going to see me sort of driving a Ferrari and on a super yacht, kind of giving it large. I, I like to hide behind the people I'm representing in the work that I'm doing. I think I'm also pretty open and honest, not in a, a rude way, but I'm, I'm not a great believer in mincing words. Your agency was called Frank. Exactly, exactly. And that was all about, you know, being open, honest, no bullshit. And, and I think that reflected, that's why we called it Frank. I mean, there's no great mystery to it. It was my values. It was Graham's values. And we still hold them true and dear to this day. You know, look, everyone uses the word authentic. It's a bit of a cliche, but you have to be yourself. You can't pretend to be someone else. And a strong personal brand will come through if it's believable and it's authentic. And I don't know, look, one of the benefits I have is I know how to build my, well, it's not even building my own personal brand. I know how to communicate. Other people in other industries, very successful CEOs, whatever, don't necessarily have that skill set. And quite often they'll employ an agency or a person to write copy for them for LinkedIn or to do video stuff for Instagram or whatever it might be. And it just, to me, it doesn't work. You know, if it's not someone's true voice, if they're not getting involved, engaging themselves personally, you know, if you look at Lord Sugar, everything he does is him. You know, I couldn't, I mean, I probably could pretend to be him and write like he writes and speak <laughs> like he speaks because I know pretty much what he's going to say, but it's him. And that's why it works. You might not like it, but you know what he stands for and what you see is what you get. And that's what a strong personal brand is. I don't know what people's perception of me would be from the outside in, it's quite hard and I've never really stopped to think about it, but I'm just myself and I never, I will never write or post or talk about anything that I feel uncomfortable about, or I would cringe reading it back. I try to remain humble because I think that's my personality. I mean, you never go out and say I'm humble because that's a real knob thing to say, but genuinely I'm not a sort of in your face flash type of character. And I say it, as it is. And I, I also am a great believer of if you haven't got something positive or nice to say, don't say it at all. And I will keep my gob shut on lots and lots of things I have an opinion on just because I don't believe in spreading negativity. Or So I'd, I'd try and be a bit of a cheerleader for the industry, for creativity, for great business people. But it's genuine. It's not. You have to, if you want praise to be recognised and received, it has to be used sparingly and at the right times. And I've believed that when I've been running my company. I believe that today. So you know, when I shout about things that I'm excited about that I've achieved or others have achieved, it's from the heart and I mean it. And I don't do it for everything because then it loses its value. You, you said you don't like to 
obviously say anything that isn't positive or constructive, let's say constructive as well. What, what you've just touched on there and possibly longevity of you know, personal brand and things like that. Authenticity can sometimes equal longevity as long as there's talent, hard work, all of these things in the mix as well. I think it is possibly important though, that if somebody's listening to this and comparison is a thief of joy, that's, that's a saying we, we hear, we're yep. bombarded on social media with that person's richer, funnier, yep. better looking, you know, better shape, all of these things. You know, that person's personality, I'm, I'm a big MMA fan. You get fighters that come up and they feel like they have to be the next Conor McGregor. They have to be the next controversial person. So they almost put a hat on that's not theirs. At the risk of it sounding negative, it's important to possibly speak to people that might be listening to this that are thinking, I want to put that hat on because I think that'll get me more followers or that might, you know, that, that might help me from a, you know, an immediate success perspective. Whereas what you're just saying there is it's about being truly yourself if you can be and not worrying about all those people, but the draw to attempt to emulate. Yeah. Yeah. You, you have to do it in your own way and your own style that, that you're comfortable with. And, you know, one of the things with Frank, we recognized or just knew inherently from a very early stage of the company there's thousands of PR companies out here. We need to be known for something. We have to make people look at our brand and know what they're going to get. And so I hid behind Frank for 20 years, although I was a voice, you know, you couldn't really separate me from Frank. Largely, I was speaking about the work of the agency and, and the work that we were doing rather than myself, but we stood for something. And that's really, really important, I think. And you can't emulate other people's style. I remember speaking to Stephen Bartlett actually a couple of years ago and you know he built Social Chain into a phenomenal company really off the back of his personal PR. Stephen said to me you know he realized very early on rather than have a new business department you know he would get a film crew to follow him around 24 hours a day seven days a week and he did that I think for I think he said to me two years, nonstop, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, film crew with him. And look, he's incredibly charismatic and bright and it works for him. I could never do that. But that was his version of... It's really growing up out loud as well, isn't it? Yeah. And so different people do it in different ways. And I think the younger generation... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST without the you know sounding like too much of an old fart you know they're much more comfortable in front of a camera and talking about their emotions and their personal life and people are fascinated you know, people buy people it's, it's as basic as that so if you give people a bit of an insight into your life and how you think they're going to relate to you much more so than any company you know, even if you take the biggest brands in the world you can still think of the ceos behind them and how they their values reflect on the company's values but for me you know, I, I use different channels in different ways. So if you go on Instagram, 
you'll get a glimpse of my life, but it's not super personal. And I'm not telling you what I'm having for breakfast and taking a selfie every time I go out. It's used sparingly. But, I, you know, you, I'm not a robot. I do have a life outside of work. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. So you want to give people a bit of a window. But, you know, you look at some of the biggest and best personal brands out there. You know everything about them. You know what their bedroom looks like. You know where they have breakfast. The way I've always talked about personal PR to potential clients is if I'm a journalist and I've got two businesses and I see this business over here, charismatic founder, he's got a lot to say, he, you know, he's willing to talk about these, these issues and this business over here, absolute wallflower, I'm going to choose the one that's got something to say. And as you said, you think of your virgins, you think of Microsoft, you think of Bill Gates, you know, Apple, you think of Steve Jobs, yeah. Yeah, all of these people. And, and that's not an accident. You know, I've always described PR as I want you to think something, but I want you to think you thought it. And yes. you have also said that you like making people famous and successful, but you like doing it behind kind of behind closed doors almost. Yeah. So it's, it's taken the idea of making that person famous and successful, but without almost the footprints being visible. You just got to find a way that you're comfortable doing it and you can't replicate someone else. You, you've got to put your own spin and your own twist on what feels right for you. And the reason why I'm would say, you know, I'm quite a good self-publicist is because I just do it in a very, I don't, I'm not doing it to self-promote. It's just natural for me to talk about the work I'm doing, to celebrate the work of others. I mean, and, and then it brings other work, right? That's the, yeah, you know, that's but I'm we... not really doing it with any sort of mission or business objective. It's just part of who I am. And I'm, I've grown up doing that. And I'm sure you could look at the way I do it and say, well, have you thought about doing that? Have you thought about doing that? And Chances are I probably have thought about it, but don't really want to do it because it just doesn't feel natural to me. And I'm pretty shit at, you know, editing, making things look nice. You know, I'm incompetent in that. But it doesn't matter because I'm just doing it in my own way and getting something done and getting something out there is more important than doing it perfectly. And I would never hire anyone to edit videos or do professional photography or, you know, you just have to part with my rubbish. Self is bad lighting, <laughs> poor grammar. That's me. Why do you think you do like making other people famous, successful? I think it probably goes back to the buzz of seeing results for people. And I, you know, I believe everything you do has to have a business objective. I'm not a great believer in fame for fame's sake, PR for PR's sake, has to lead back to something. So whether it's a personal brand or a company, or I, I guess I get my buzz out of seeing them be successful, seeing them evolve. And that has an impact on me because the better they're doing, the more work. I'm getting, but I just enjoy it. I mean, I've, and I enjoy giving back to the industry. It's just part of who I am. I think we're a pretty sociable, I don't know. I don't, it's, it's a good question. And I don't really know if I, if I know the answer, but I just enjoy it. I, I enjoy being successful myself and I enjoy helping other people on their road to success at the same time. You said you enjoy being successful yourself. What, what is success? What does success look like to you? Success for me, it's as simple as being happy and enjoying what I'm doing and enjoying life. You know, I won't go into my personal life. I won't go into any great debt. But I, I couldn't tell you where I'm going to be professionally or personally in a year, in five years, in 10 years. And I don't care. I've embraced uncertainty in all aspects of my life. But my barometer of whether things are going well or not is, am I enjoying it? And am I feeling professionally motivated? Am I personally motivated? And the answer today is yes. And if the answer tomorrow is yes, that's good. But one day, the answer will be no. And that's where you, you know, for me, what I've learned in life is if something's not right, you change it and do something about it. And 
I, I've got no time for people who are glass half empty and negative and we're all in control of our own destiny. And I'm not saying a change has to be like a dramatic overnight thing, but you have to be self-conscious and aware of what makes you happy and take the steps to get you there. And that's a journey often. It's not, it's not a flick of switch, but you have to be in tune with what it is you enjoy and what motivates you and what your buzz is. And look, there's elements of it that there's business elements, there's financial elements. They all sort of come together. But if you're not happy, financial freedom, personal freedom, you know, all these things are irrelevant. It's the greatest wealth. It's, it's simple. You know, the greatest wealth you can have is your health and your happiness. And that's my barometer. And it served me well. You know, you asked me to give you a one year forecast on my business. No chance. I mean, I can tell you what's going to happen in the next few weeks, and that's about <laughs> it, really. And that's fine. I mean, it's it's that's okay. I mean, not everyone works like that. Some people need the process, the steps to follow. The I'm very self motivated. I'm I'm very capable of just getting done what needs to be done myself without the need to follow a roadmap or a plan. But ironically, you know, I spend a lot of my time helping others put that in place because not everyone has that ability or the confidence or the vision to know where they want to be or how they're going to get there. So I enjoy helping people get, get on the right path. How do you find balance in doing all the many things you do and being a dad? Challenging is the truth. And I, I think one of the downsides of running an agency for me was it was relentless and... Is your what, son's 19? Your, your eldest, my oldest eldest is 19, yeah. And you started Frank 20 years ago. So you started an agency and had your first child. Well, not quite. <laughs> Just my, my oldest son is actually my stepson, but oh, I, I see. treat him like my own son and think of him like my own son. But so he was three and a half when I met him. So right. Frank was, you know, roughly. Still early. Still early, yeah. And yeah, I think when you're running an agency and you've got responsibility for a lot of people, inevitably you make compromises. And, you know, I probably came home too late too often, left too early too often, missed too many football matches. And look, it is what it is. So I'm not going to say I regret it. But as I've got older, you, you know, cliched, kids grow up quick. I mean, they really, really do. And I'm an adult now. And not so long ago, you know, we were running around the park and, you know, playing with Lego. And I, I kind of made myself the promise that when I stepped back from Frank, the flexibility that it gave me, I would use that to ensure that I didn't miss the football matches and I didn't miss the school concerts. I was at every parent's evening. And I am, I haven't missed anything. And it's amazing. And it's one of the greatest benefits of my sort of shift is, yeah, I still work hard, but if I want to take Wednesday afternoon off to go and watch my son play cricket, I'll do it. And yeah, I'll be back at my desk at nine at night, you know, catching up on emails and getting ready for the next day. But that's flexibility I didn't necessarily have when I was running an agency because the people that work for you can't wait till nine o'clock and a client needs a meeting and it's got to be on Wednesday afternoon when the cricket match is on. And I didn't necessarily have the confidence or the, the power to sort of say, no, my son. And you know, people who work with me now, when I first started, I was a bit, almost like a bit embarrassed. I was like, oh, I can't do Wednesday afternoon. And they're like, come on, we need to do Wednesday afternoon. I said, sorry, I can't. Now I just say, sorry, I'm, I'm dad Wednesday afternoon. And I, and I think people really respect it. I think they do. I think the last few years have brought a real change. Has, yeah. Post-COVID. Yeah. Post, I know it's, it's hard to put it to a single point, but when that kid walked into the room, when his dad was given an interview live on TV and, and his mum came in to like, you know, drag him out. I think of that as a bit of a flashpoint, a bit of a change 
you know, as to how people think about, okay, the world's changed. There is working from home. Yeah. You know, there are responsibilities. We are, you know, there is this duality, you know, you are professional, but there, there is that personal. I think people are a tiny bit more forgiving now. Yes. Of, yeah, of, they are. You know, the, the need, and because maybe they always hoped that we'd do the same back. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think one of the positives that's come out of COVID is it's forced people to reflect on their lives. And is there such a thing as work-life balance? I'm not sure it's the right term. It's just how you blend everything together and make it work for you. But it's, you know, actually one of the sad things I think is I've seen, especially in the last year, people, you know, reverting back to the old ways. And I've always been very precious of my time. Even pre-COVID, I would be conscious that, you know, if I was having a meeting, to have it in my office would save me two hours of traveling to someone else's office. And that was just the way I well, thought. Well, you said earlier on, you know, time's the most important thing. It's the one thing, most, it's corny, but you can't get it back. It's yeah. the most valuable thing. Yeah, so use it sensibly. And I'm also, look, not afraid to say to someone, don't really want to do lunch or I haven't got time to go for lunch. Because I don't, I'm not interested. It could be a 10-minute conversation. Obviously, there's a time and a place. And sometimes, you, you know, you can't replicate face-to-face interaction and I still do that but COVID taught me that you don't need to be on a plane a train all day long every day flying to all corners of the world you know that's what Zoom's for sometimes you do but so yeah it's slowed everyone down a bit and I think it's made people more empathetic to people's lives and it's been a, a massive benefit for me I you know the amount of time that it's given me to take the kids to school pick them up schlep up to university with a million suitcases in my boot. You know, all the things that I wouldn't have had time to do or would have, you know, got someone else to do, I'm there for. And it's, it's great whether the kids know it or notice the difference, appreciate it. I've got no idea, but I enjoy it. And I'm sure they will after the fact as well. I don't care if they do or they don't. I mean, from a selfish perspective, <laughs> I enjoy it and I get a lot of pleasure from it. And, you know, the truth of it is we can work from anywhere now and we can be flexible and slightly different for me than for someone that's sort of at an early stage of a career. But I, I guess I've earned that in some ways. Decades of work gets you there. I mean, was your dad the sort of person to be working away quite a lot? Yeah. No, my dad was, was a proper grafter. He was a import-exporter of toys and garden furniture, and he spent a lot of time in the Far East, which I guess, you know, even if he was doing the job today, he'd still have to do to visit factories and suppliers and stuff. But he just had an amazing work ethic. And, you know, I've seen it. Even he's been retired, and I, you know, retired in inverted commas, to be honest. But because he's still up at five in the morning, I don't really know what he's doing. But if you've got a mind that needs to be busy and is entrepreneurial, and you're always, it, it could be bidding on some crap on eBay or something. It doesn't matter. <laughs> like he's there and he's dedicated to it and he's doing it. And so I, I do think, you know, I, he's a massive inspiration to me in terms of. You know, he, he grafted for years and years and built a very successful career through that hard work. And he was obviously good at what was it his did. own company. It was complicated. He's sort of sometimes he was working on behalf of someone else. Other times he was doing it for himself. Um, so a bit of a mix, not dissimilar to what I'm doing now, I guess. Not to go too far back, but you, you talked about his work ethic. Did he get that presumably from his parents? Was a you know, what were, what were they like? It's interesting. I mean, his his dad, my grandfather, who's no longer with us, was a pharmacist. He was probably the only academic. He was a doctor, you know, and really bright. And but also, yeah, hard worker. He had two or three pharmacies, and he was in there every day and working. And I, I think it is something that's built into you. You can't teach someone to 
have that work ethic. You and, see it, I guess. You you saw your dad working hard. He saw his dad working hard. You know, and, and yeah. Just... But then you know, I look at my kids and whether they've got the same work ethic or not. I'm not sure yet. I was going to say it might be too early to tell it. Might be too early, but I'm not. I wouldn't take it as a given mm. that they will be like me. And if it's not right for them, then that's fine. You can't make them in, into that. But you'd like to think that you're a bit of an influence to them, even if it's subconscious, that they see what you do. And But like I say, the most important thing is to find something you enjoy because then it doesn't feel like you're working. I, I do feel lucky in that respect. What are you most proud of when you, when you look at what you did at Frank, let's say? I don't think there's one single moment. There's been various sort of milestones. I think, you know, the great campaigns, winning the awards, and selling the agency was you know, real milestone that changed my life professionally and personally. Probably the thing I'm most proud of, which again was something I only reflected on relatively recently, was all the careers of the people that worked for Frank and seeing them have gone on to do great things, start their own companies, high flying in various different positions. That, in a way, that's my legacy. And I never really realised it at the time, because at the time you're pissed off they're leaving or upset, <laughs> you know, and resentful, like, why can't they stay here? But you realise you can't hold on to everyone. And if you're nurturing entrepreneurial type people, it's inevitable that they're going to go off and spread their wings. So I look back now and I think, wow, that's the alumni of Frank. I mean, that's just amazing to see. You look at the top, top level of PR people in this country and marketing people in this country, and so many of them have come via Frank. And I'm not taking all the credit for that, but I'd like to think I can take a little bit. And it's brilliant. That's, that's the thing I'm proudest of, if I was to pick out anything, I think. I think you said earlier on that going back into your school, at the time, they wouldn't have necessarily considered you and your, your group of friends to, to be the people that are going to go on to be successful because it, would, you know, it was in these creative areas. I think that you've possibly been at the forefront of creating a, a professional field where creativity is rewarded and it can be lucrative and it can be a really respectable career that maybe you didn't have when you were at school. And I think you've been part of that. And I think your peers have been part of that, creating decades worth of work and, and hard work to get to a place where people say, okay, that is a, you know, that's a genuine career. That's a genuine opportunity. Yeah. And now, as you say, you're asked to go back in and speak. So, it, you know, that, that says something. Yeah. Look, the reality of it is, I think only the very top percentage in any profession, achieve great success. Not everyone can be successful doing doing something. But kids at school nowadays are inspired. I mean, not necessarily by people like me. It's probably more likely to be KSI or whatever YouTuber is flavor of the month. But you know, you know they they understand this world of creativity, whether it's advertising, PR, you know, digital, social, and the school. The reason they've asked us back is because you know they need to do more to inspire these kids and to help them get onto the ladder and begin that journey, which nothing gives me more pleasure. It doesn't, I mean, it's nice that's my school, but I'd be happy if it was any school. I think what you've done is you've added more people. I don't know if you've heard of the participation pyramid. It's something that kind of in sports right. they talk about. So the reason that it's so hard to make it as a professional footballer is the base of people playing is so very broad. Yeah. So obviously that makes the people at the very top the best. Yes. You know, like the best of the best and it gets harder. So when you came into PR and advertising, it was still an industry working itself out. What you've done is you've increased the broadness of that base. You said that only a few people succeed. I think you and others like you have increased the, the base of that pyramid because you've brought more people in, brought more talent in, made it look more exciting. And, you know, it is. I've been in PR, as I say, 15 years. It is an exciting career. Yeah. You know, you, you've added to that. 
and it's only improved the industry as a result. I think sometimes. I hope so. I mean, it's. I still think it's an amazing industry. Without making this kind of too reflective and too much like uh, you know, this is your life, and you know, that's absolutely <laughs> not what I'm doing. You're still in the industry. You're still. How do you feel? You, you, you touched on AI earlier with Propel. Like, do you dabble with some of the AI tools? Do you do you play with your GPTs and mid-journeys? I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I do, I'm a sucker for new technology, but not technology for the sake of technology. And there's always this temptation to jump on the latest bandwagon. But I don't, I think AI is going to totally revolutionize. Well, I know that it's going to totally revolutionize not just our industry, but every industry. And really, you know, you can't get left behind. I, I, I'm not in fear of it. I don't think AI is going to replace my job or other people's jobs, but I believe the best people will understand how to use AI to their advantage, commercially, creatively, competitively. So that's what I'm keeping an eye on. I think what's fascinating is you can save a lot of time via AI. And if you're smart about that, you can pass that value on to a client, help them achieve more in less time for less cost. And then you can use those efficiencies in in other ways. And that's really where my head's at. I was talking about it last night with someone from publicists and they were kind of saying, you know, the, the challenge is they can't exactly get it to do what they want it to do at the moment. Yet. Yet. <laughs> but they're, you know, they're learning and that's from a sort of creative advertising perspective. But we're also talking about, you know, there's a certain irony that, kid, that kids at schools in the last few years have, there's been a lot of focus on teaching them to code. And I remember even with my oldest son when he was, computer lessons are so boring, that kind of conversation. I was like, if you're going to focus on one thing, learn the basics at least, because you're going to need those skills much more so than you're going to need Latin or history or geography. Or But actually AI is going to kill coding. All this stuff that kids are learning at school is, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think completely irrelevant because that's where AI will automate all of these sort of manual type skill sets and processes, but it can't replace human interaction connections, the ability to make things happen. That's interpersonal skills. And that's why I don't feel in any sort of threat to my career and to the industry in general. But the basics of churning out some copy, creating some images, the, the bits that don't need the personal touch, that's all going to be automated and is already well underway. So it's fascinating. It really, and I guess that speaks to the curiosity that I was talking about earlier on. It's the, I don't know how this thing works. I want to see what it does, how useful this can be to me or, or not. Um, I was playing yesterday with, um, it's going to age this massively because in six months time, it'll be completely different. By but, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow. Different. Yeah. Um, Runway, the text to video um, right. AI tool. And it, it's really impressive what it can already do. You know, it's just four second clips. I'm, I'm there thinking about the implications for PR marketing and branding and, you know, how you know, more broadly than that, because of course that's not necessarily going to be of interest to everybody listening, is... I feel like within 12 months, we could have the first decent AI feature film. And yeah. that's how quickly these things are moving. Yeah, it is moving at a scary pace. Yeah, it's trying to get your head around it. And it excites me because it's I get excited by new things. And no one's figured it out. And all these people doing LinkedIn seminars. And at the end of the day, if you'd have asked me the impact of AI this time a year ago, I wouldn't have even known what it was. So it's, you know, you can't have these experts yet there's people that obviously know more than other people the smart people are just trying to look at it from what they do know and where it could go but thinking about it in terms of commercial and business implications and we shouldn't be scared by these things we should embrace them and use them to our advantage because 
technology isn't slowing down. I've said that you spend 20% of your time, or you try to spend 20% of your time helping the charities, other organizations. Me stepping back from Frank was not retirement, but it was about a change of pace and it was about a change of direction. And it was about, I don't know, the next stage of my career. And I felt very strongly that I wanted to give something back. And I'm constantly asked to help people, mentor them and of course, you want to help everyone, but you don't have the time to help everyone. So I tried to, in a way, taking the inspiration from Alan Sugar of like, you know, The Apprentice was a vehicle to go from inspiring thousands to inspiring millions. I'm not at that level. And I'm, unfortunately, I can't inspire millions. I wish I could. You might. You know One that. day, maybe. But so I looked at that principle and I thought, how can I do that? So I applied to the Prince's Trust and got accepted by them to sit on their, it's called the Business Launch Group. And effectively, it's like a mini Dragon's Den is these young people from often quite underprivileged, disadvantaged backgrounds have worked with mentors at Prince's Trust for years to build up business plans and um, business models. And I listen to those plans they go to panel it's called look at the viability of those businesses and the people behind them and advise the prince's trust on whether it should be a business that they they should be backing and putting investment into so that's one bit which is really rewarding i've been involved with places like the school of marketing and the school of communication arts for quite a long time and that again helps me inspire the next generation that are coming through not just with sort of empty words, but also practical advice and help to get them on that ladder. And, you know, that's often the hardest bit is getting that first break. And I want to help as many people as possible get that first break. Why? 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 Because I think it was 30 odd years ago, but I remember how tough it was when I was doing it. And look, I didn't come from an underprivileged background, but I didn't have any doors open for me. I did it off my own back via the hundreds of letters and interviews and applications and it was bloody difficult. And I didn't have anyone to help explain to me or introduce me or, you know, I had some random uncle who worked in some two bit advertising agency in the sixties or something. That was my closest link to the industry. And, you know, now if I can help inspire, if I can help open a door, if I can help get someone work placement, you know, Frank, the work placement scheme is a massive part of what we did. I always believed in that sort of Alex Ferguson model of bringing youngsters through the ranks and making them into great PR people. And I'm so proud of everyone that we brought through that process. So it's, it's always been a big thing for me. And then I also, you know, I wanted to try and use my skills to the greater good of society without sort of sounding too lofty and worthy. But I probably the thing that I'm most proud of in the last couple of years is I got a call from... Um, Sir Lloyd Dorfman, who's the guy who founded Travelex and Office Group and things like that, a very successful entrepreneur. And he had, during COVID, he wanted to create an online memorial for the people that had sadly passed away so that they could be remembered forever. And he sat on the board of St. Paul's Cathedral and he said, look, I'd really like to make this online memorial remember me bigger and better and actually i'd love to make it a physical thing within st paul's physical memorial but a nothing's been built in st paul's for like 
hundreds of years. It's not like building an extension on your house. It's like requires a bit more planning. And B, it's going to require several million pounds to actually build it. And I don't know how to do it. And do you think you could help? And anyway, cut a long story short, I said yes, because I just felt, wow, this is something to make a real impact. I got the mail, Daily Mail on board as a partner and cut a long story short, we raised, I think it was about 2.7 million, bought on board some big donors, got public donations, got awareness up, got Prince Charles, now King Charles involved, got Boris Johnson involved, the backing of Parliament. And we built this memorial and you go into St. Paul's now and it's there. You know, it's it's weird. I think like, shit, like actually probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for my part in it. And I'm only a small part in it. It wasn't like entirely down to me, but pretty amazing to have done something that will be there forever. It's, it's properly a part of And that is legacy important to you? I guess so. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I was to drop dead tomorrow, whether I would be remembered for anything or you just want to feel like you're, you're the best version of yourself that you can do. And I do feel as you get older, you have a certain responsibility to give back. And it's, I mean, maybe responsibility is the wrong word. It's not, it's something that I want to do. I'm not doing it for any sort of external recognition or praise. I don't really care if, you know, people know what I'm doing, not what I'm doing. It just from a selfish point of view, maybe makes me feel good about myself. I enjoy doing it. And going back to what I was saying about enjoying what you do, it's not all about making money. It's, it's about doing good. And I think, you know, one of the things I've always loved about the PR industry, we do a lot of pointless shit float stuff down the Thames, make giant this, have celebrities doing that. And it's not, you know, it's PR, not ER, as people say. And I quite liked that in some way. You know, my job was to maybe make someone smile, bring some humour to a miserable news agenda. That's okay. Somebody called, uh, said that my personal brand is to be professionally daft. And I'm like, okay, I'll take that. You know, if that's what you think of me, that's what you think of me, because I'd sooner make somebody smile. We're an interruption at the end of the day. Let's be a fun, informative, educational, what creative, whatever it is. You know, let's be a fun interruption, ideally. But I love that. You know, I love that. And it's nice that you can mix it up with, you know, over the course of my career, I've done some pretty worthwhile stuff as well. Raised millions of pounds for charity, helped raise awareness of environmental causes, you know, things like working with Burger King to eliminate plastic waste. You know, they're all big game changing things in and amongst the nonsense. And I guess you know, at this stage of my career, it's some of it is about doing really serious stuff, you know, dealing with big prices for CEOs and corporates. Other stuff is just nonsense. But yeah, one of the things I loved doing in the last few years was I got involved with a breast cancer awareness charity and they had this initiative, which was called Let's Nail Breast Cancer. And for years they'd been, had partnerships with beauty salons to paint women's nails pink and they donated a couple of quid to the charity. And they were like, we don't know how to take this further into the next stage. And so I said, well, it's not particularly interesting. You know, a woman wears pink nails. No one looks twice. Why don't you get men to paint their nails pink? That's going to be a bit more noticeable. And they're like, really? Never really thought about that. I said, okay, well, let's start it off. I'll get some celebrities to paint their nails pink. And, you know, so there's some really good sports and Claude Littner and um, <laughs> Callum Best. And- it's that disruptive thinking. You touched on it really early on. You've, you've said, okay, you're doing this. Let's disrupt that ever so slightly. Let's take something less obvious. Let's go down a less exactly. obvious path. And the best, so then I spoke to Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's you know been a mate of mine for, for years. I said to Ronnie, like, would you ever paint your nails pink? And he was like, yeah, yeah. Layla, his 
fiance's like been saying for years I should do it. I said, would you ever wear it in a tournament? And he was like, yeah. So anyway, he painted his nails pink. And the beauty of it was, A, it was so noticeable because, you know, TV cameras are on his hands the whole time. And it wasn't really. An, uh, but, but B, every single commentator, broadcaster, journalist had to explain why has Ronnie got pink nails? So naturally, they were saying to him, why are your nails pink? And he was saying, you know, I got approached by breast cancer charity called Future Dreams. They asked if I'd do this to raise awareness of, of breast cancer and the issues of it affecting women and men. And yeah, it got so much publicity, raised so much money. And that, that for me, like, you know, I didn't get paid to do that. It was about helping someone do something, but using that, that sort of creativity. You know, it wasn't a fundraiser that was rattling a tin like lots of other people or going to corporates and begging for money. I was using my skill set to bring awareness to something. And that's nice, you know, but I'm not, I've never, you know, I'm not Mr. Purpose. I'm not Mr. Not-for-profit. But to mix stuff up, and that's why now I like doing bit of creative stuff, bit of corporate stuff, bit of everything, really, because that variety, I have a relatively short attention span and like doing lots of things at once and having that sort of mix of everything that kind of fits together but all uses my skill set is, I think, what's made made it easy to do that. The reason I asked why, in terms of why you thought, you know, want to get to giving back, it was to to draw out, we're, we're talking to people from, you know, all different kinds of backgrounds. And, and you said, you know, you're not from this, you know, incredibly unprivileged or, you know, lacking in privileged background, but it's what you can do with where you start from. And what you've done is you've taken your skill set, you've taken, you know, your interests, your, your art teacher kind of giving you some, you know, some sense of, you know, oh, okay, I am good at that. I could do that. You've taken that and look at the impact you've had because of, you know, where, where you started from and, and, you know, the, the money you've had to raise, you know, the, the, the careers you've started, all of those things. I think that's, I guess, what I want to do with this is it doesn't have to be a bleeding heart. You know, I started with nothing. And, and of course, those are some incredibly inspiring stories sometimes too, but I don't think, like, I don't think it starts and ends there. I think there are people you know, that, that are doing incredible things who you know, just, just think that bit differently. And I want people to listen to this and feel it sounds corny, but to feel inspired and to feel like, oh, look at what I could do. Okay, if I just work hard, if I put the time in, if I, that's it. It's, it's like nothing comes easily, but look at the impact you can have. And I think that's why, I, as I say, that, that one question is why. That's what I wanted to try and draw yeah, out. Yeah, no, so that's really, it's, it's, it's interesting. I've never really thought about why. From a selfish point of view, I enjoy helping people. It makes me happy. And like you say, look, I've stumbled into something that miraculously I'm quite good at. And if I can help other people have the same sort of enjoyment out of their career that I've had, amazing. And yeah, I do. I, I look back on my early days trying to get into the industry and it was difficult. And, you know, obviously some people have it more difficult than me. I was, you know, one of the things about coming from a comfortable background is you can afford to do a work placement and not get paid for a few weeks. Some people don't have that privilege. And it's great that companies now are recognizing that. And helping them, you know, either paying them for the work experience or helping them fund that work experience. You know, I, I was lucky. I was living at home. My parents were supporting me. I was earning money of my own. I was, I've been working since I was 12 years old. But actually, when I was about 15, 16, I got a job selling timeshares. Funnily enough, a few of the people that I was out with last night, we all were doing that during our school holidays and then made really decent money. Like we were, it was the best. We're all salespeople. We might not think we are, but sales is such an important skill and it's because you know people you you get to 
it's, it's that empathy. Human it's, psychology it's being psychology. able to convince someone to do something. And, you know, you try flogging a timeshare, it doesn't get much tougher than that. I can't that. imagine it. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like the sort of ice to the Eskimos type sale. But I loved it. Loved, loved sales. And then when I went to university, there was, yeah, I was Jewish, had quite a lot of Jewish friends. And we'd all go to these sort of Jewish events. I don't know why, but Jewish people congregated together. And I also had a lot of mates who were Asian. And they sort of did the same and they were going to their Asian events. And we were like, why don't we do, let's bring the Jews and the Asians <laughs> together. And we got double the market and we started to create these student events. And it started off pretty small, like wine bars, 150 people, a few quid a ticket. By the time I left university, we'd done a deal with the Hacienda. We were selling out two and a half thousand, three thousand tickets a week. We had everyone from like Judge Jules, Boy George, Carl Cox, DJing it became like this massive thing. We were never making a fortune because there was about 15 of us in this consortium. Right. Okay. But I look back and I think, wow, that was really entrepreneurial. And we Incredibly did deals with like Hagen Dars to give out free ice creams and Smirnoff was sponsoring all the vodka shots. And I think, how did I ever know how to do that? But we just kind of did. So I was earning really good money. And actually, when I started at Lim Frank, one of the first things I worked on was these nightclub events for Cherry Coke. And everyone was like, how do you know what to do and how to set up a cloakroom? And I've done this for years. And I think they thought I was a bit mental. And I was still doing all the student nights and, you know, after work, going out and handing out flyers till two, three in the morning. And then once a week, we had this event. It was at the Emporium nightclub. It doesn't exist anymore on Kingley Street. And it was called Poor Millionaires. It was the student night there. We're doing that. I think it's every Monday or every Tuesday. I can't remember. And so I was, you know, once a week up till four in the morning, every other night up to one. And then you just, I guess age catches up with you or, you know, as it got a bit more serious with work, I was like, oh, I can do this anymore. I'm exhausted, like absolutely exhausted. So we sort of packed in the nightclub venture. I could have been the next Peter Stringfellow. But Is, would you have wanted to be the next Peter Stringfellow? No, I, you know, <laughs> I actually, I loved it. And the three years we did it when we were at university was brilliant because it was all our mates and it was Very community orientated. Brilliant. And then when I left university, we carried on doing it. And I had one mate who was doing a four-year degree and I used to go and kip on his floor and stuff. But so, it wasn't the same. I sort of, because all my mates had left and it was like... So did everybody fall away from it? I just didn't really enjoy it. I enjoyed it when it was almost like I was hosting a party for all my friends and lots of people and that weren't my friends. a couple of other thousand yeah. people. <laughs> and then when it was people I didn't know and stuff, it just sort of... And then when I was doing it in London, I just like, I don't know. And I also recognised, yeah, I can keep doing this till I'm 23, 24, 25, but... I'm not going to be running nightclubs when I'm 30 years old or 40 years old. It just wasn't, wasn't my thing. So, and the PR bit came along. But I'm um, talking about being creative, talking about artistic um, ability. Are you artistic? I love, I love modern art and street art and street culture. And I, 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 I've got an A-level in art. I wouldn't say that makes me Banksy, but I'm okay. I mean, when I, when I was younger, I was an aspiring graffiti artist with my group of friends. And was this the same group of friends or um, younger? No, so. actually my sort of wrong and group of <laughs> friends. So there, there was a handful of us and we used to go out and tag sides of buses. Trains. When would this have been? This was... We were like 13, 14 and we were decent. We like had a bit of a following and I say decent. I don't know what I'm judging that on, but you know, we... We'd, we were well-known in a very, very small sort of street art community at the time until one day I got arrested after spray-painting the side of a train in, I think it was in Edgware, Edgware train station, and we'd 
broken into the yard, done a big sort of piece along a train, and then I'd gone home. And then 15 minutes later, there was a knock at the door. My mum answered the door, and there was a policeman with, you know, like the old-fashioned sort of police helmets full up of spray cans. And he was like, could we speak to your son? And I sort of wandered to the door, and my mum was like, in disbelief, what's going on? They're like, we believe that you've just been spray painting a train. And I was like, no, I've been in my bedroom. But like, what? And he said, put your hands out. And I put my hands out, and they're like dripping <laughs> paint. And I was like, uh, I've been nicked. And yeah, we literally we red-handed. Got, I mean, my mum went mad, understandably so. And I think we had 150 hours community service or something. Um, so you're, you're, all of your friends got caught as well? We all got caught, about five of us. And yeah, we spent every weekend for about two years cleaning road signs and every week tidying up roundabouts yeah we had i think it was 150 hours community service it was like that was the end of my graffiti career (laughs) um that's what that's what you tell us in reality banksy still remains unmasked do you know what it was a mate of mine one of my oldest mates it was his 50th birthday last week two weeks ago and for his birthday card i was like thought i'm gonna do an old piece and i actually like did this piece for his card and he loved it. But like, you kind of never lose it. I sort of still, I've always been a big doodler and I still sort of do stuff in a scrapbook, but nothing of any sort of professional level. But you can see from my art here, you know, I love all this, enjoy it. So. What was it about street art that kind of captured you? Oh, at the time, I mean, I think it was the adventure and the rebellion, but I just liked it as a form of expression and you know, I've never really been into fine art and I can appreciate it, but it's not my thing. I love seeing the pieces on the street and the fact it's not permanent, but the whole, yeah, I'm a massive Banksy fan, not necessarily for his political views or even the pieces that he does, just how he's built a whole career out of being anonymous and that the marketing side of what he does is an absolute PR genius and in a world where everyone wants to be famous and get their name and their face plastered everywhere you got this guy who no one knows who he is there's rumors there's speculation and he's taken street art to the level where he's making millions upon millions of pounds i love people like damien hurst and again not necessarily because of their art just how they've marketed themselves and built their profiles and subversion disruption yeah. all the things that you said about earlier on that yeah. you about PR. yeah there's not not a massive dissimilarity in great art and great pr pr is, a, is an art i think most people don't realize just how influenced they are each day by people like you and me i guess yeah you know we that celebrity that you love they only didn't say that thing because we were there saying no don't tweet that <laughs> do not tweet that look the reality is you look on social media you open up a newspaper you watch the tv every single piece article feature is influenced by a PR person. And obviously now, you know, I, I can spot it a mile off and read behind the headlines. And But the average person doesn't. And why would they? There was a piece, um, the Independent on Sunday did like a double page feature on this agency called Cake. And I've still got it. Like, I mean, it's, it must have been from I don't know, early 90s or whatever. And I was like, one day I want to have an agency like that. I want to do that kind of stuff. And I recognise what I like. I didn't really necessarily understand it, but there was, it was, yeah, it was, you know, that, that creative part of PR is, is an art form. Banksy is a PR artist. You know, you can call it whatever you want. Is he the greatest artist? Do you think he'd like to hear that? He knows he is. I mean, it's, it's not, it's deliberate. And that's what's so brilliant about it. You know, the shredding of the girl with the balloon, the 
28 days of consecutive stuff going on in New York. You know, every, the, the Waldorf Hotel, it, it's, it's brilliant. It's all planned. You know, he's got a team of people behind him that work with him to bring it to life. But he understands the value of creating headlines. He's never picked up the phone to you to ask you, say. He won't be phoning me for artistic inspiration, that <laughs> is for sure. But these people, are, are they the greatest artists? I mean, look at Damien Hirst. You know, you, anyone really could do some spots on the page. It's, but the value of that and the perception of the perceived value of that, and it's all about brand. But that's the world we live in. Why do you buy a Rolls Royce versus a Mini? You know, they both get you from A to B, but the Rolls Royce says something about you and is a reflection on your character. And obviously it's more expensive, but it, the way that it's been able to achieve a premium is by a brand, same as, you know, luxury watch brands, streetwear brands. Essentially, they're all just bits of clothing, bits of cars, you know, beauty products. But what differentiates them is the brand and the value that someone attaches to that brand. And I think that fascinates me. And I'm a sucker for it. You know, like it's, <laughs> as much as I understand it, you know, I buy into it. I think what's, what's really good is there'll be people listening that don't, that, that might not have put these things together. So I really appreciate you kind of putting it from, from A to B. It's like, okay, you, that's why you want to buy Rolls Royce. And I don't, I don't think people always, you know, nobody likes to feel like, uh, like they're being sold to. Nobody likes to feel like they're easy to be sold to. But the fact is, we're, you know, human we psychology, are. as you touched on. So. Yeah, no, we are. And we look, we make impulse purchases. And, you know, I bought 48 rolls of toilet paper off TikTok the other day. Just <laughs> of, so, you know, we, we make those sort of purchases. But something like a Rolls Royce is obviously much more considered and something you think about over time. And if you look at brands like that, you know, they're not necessarily advertising in the obvious places. The PR is very subtle. The, you know, where will you see Rolls Royce? You'll see it an air show or somewhere like that because that's where people who can afford to buy that car are hanging out it's much more subliminal much more refined and audience targeted and audience led but yeah but that's why i mean i really love street fashion as well and looking at emerging brands and how they disrupt the industry because they can't afford to do what nike are doing what adidas are doing and then it's all become like this circle in a way that nike will then collaborate with that person because it brings them a bit of street cred and i just i don't know that whole world well andrew i think we've probably been going long enough now for you um no thank you so much for this i, I you know it's hugely appreciated really good to get to know more about you and not just the pr stuff too thank you for, for having us here it's a um, pleasure beautiful place and um yeah really appreciate it thanks for having me no, enjoyed it thank you And that was Andrew Block. Thank you to Andrew. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to you for the five-star reviews. I don't know if you know this, because I didn't before I started doing this, but the reviews are key to getting up the charts, to getting out there, to getting the guests heard. So those five-star reviews algorithmically help this podcast reach more people. So thank you for those of you doing that. Yeah, we're learning. We're building. I am enjoying the process of putting this together. Hopefully you... Uh, because we're still early, right? You know, we're still early doors. We're five episodes in to what the first series was probably going to do, 12 episodes. Um, just, this was all about learning, all about seeing how to do it, both technically, in terms of production, in terms of getting out there. So hopefully you're enjoying coming along with me on that. The second series, who knows? We might even bring video in. Don't know. But either way, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I'm really, really looking forward every week to getting these episodes out there and and you know, getting that feedback. So please keep getting in touch. You know, send me messages on social media. That's Starting Line Show on TikTok and Instagram, Starting Line Show without the W on Twitter, the Starting Line Podcast on Facebook. You can email hello at startinglinepod.com. 
get in touch. You know, talk to me about the kind of content, kind of guests that you're keen to hear from. And if we can make it happen, we'll make it happen. It, it seems that people are receptive to this. Guests are receptive to this. I think that the idea of really talking to somebody different each episode, and we've had very different people so far, people with different starting lines. I don't just want this to be me trying to find the people with the worst backgrounds, the worst upbringings. The, you know, this is not about that. It's about what those people have done with where they've started and what different perspective they can bring to it. I think, you know, for me, this is an interesting episode because it speaks to somebody that works in my industry in PR and PR is a very strange place for me to have ended up. I mean, I was a personal trainer first for a couple of years and then found my way into PR because of the recession actually in 2008. And that, so that's 15 years of doing this. And I just had my daughter. I was, I was 18 when she was born. So 20 when the recession kind of kicked in and my clients basically said, you're quite expensive. And I mean, I wasn't super experienced at the time either. So I just, I didn't feel like I could ride it out. So I needed to find something a bit more stable with a bit more structure. There was a job ad. That, that was, that was how, uh, how that happened. The job ad in the paper, would you believe it? And I was the first employee at this, uh, this agency. And I didn't realize that PR, public relations being what it is, it's, it's, I think, when I wrote uh, when I wrote my book, so Myths of PR, um, when I wrote that, it was in researching for that that I found out that more people were privately educated that work in PR than were privately educated and work in Parliament, if that makes sense. I hope I've got that out right. What that means is it's an industry where lots of people get into it, and typically they've got very, very different upbringings to me. I mean, if you if you want to hear more about me in that way, I guess. Go there's there's the trailer. You know, I can speak to it. I mean, ask me questions and I'll answer them in terms of you know, email me, ask me questions and I'll answer them on this, on the you know next intro outro. You know, effectively, it wasn't a great upbringing at all. Quite a, quite quite the opposite. Quite a violent one. Quite a, quite an unhappy one in lots of lots of ways. Yeah, it just <laughs> ticks a lot of the adverse childhood experiences boxes. And most kids that come through that do not break the cycle more to the point they usually just end up repeating it and i mean i'm recording this actually having just watched any ufc fans out there and as i say we've got a ufc fighter on soon um in christian leroy duncan from gloucester any ufc fans you might have just watched sean strickland win the middleweight belt from israel adesanya it's funny i was listening to him on joe rogan and our backgrounds are not too dissimilar i mean we're very very different people but you know i was listening to him and and really felt his anger really felt his his upset and i guess each of us in very different ways are trying to do something positive with that about that and for me it's this it's bringing these stories of people and where they started from and what they've done since then and it's not all positive you know there's there are ups and there are downs and i think that's what everybody needs to realize is you know we 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 skirt around the idea of resilience these days it feels terrible for you to tell somebody that they can choose to have a better day you can. And people hate to hear that. People don't want to hear that you can be more positive, that you can wake up and try to try to make the next best decision or the next right decision. Man, what is a right decision? And, you know, I don't want to eulogize about this too much, but it is something in, in our power. And I just feel like we, we're losing that because we're so keen to put our arms around people and say, it's okay not to be okay. And sometimes I think, yeah, but it's also okay to be okay. And you have that within your power. You know, the second that we realize that we have control, that's when things get better. As I say, oh God, the musings of an idiot, right? Anyway, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you very, very much. It's 
a pleasure doing this and I'm really, really, really enjoying bringing it to you. So thank you. Have a good one. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.